Hey, should we read the Bible? Um, please, yeah, uh, Esther, where are you? Amazing. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew 6, and uh, Esther's going to read that for us. Good morning. This morning's reading is from Matthew 6, 6 to 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Esther. This morning, we are starting a new series of talks titled, When You Pray. Jesus taught his disciples. He says, when you pray, and then proceeded to lay the blueprint of prayer for generations to come. And so the goal with this series is not simply to encourage us to perhaps pray this prayer more often in our lives, but that we would also understand the words that we are praying when you pray the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer that is so, so well known. I mean, particularly from like my generation upwards. And I say it was, a, it was a big moment in my life when, you know, you do an online form and suddenly you have to tick like the, the age bracket above what you're expecting. So now I'm like, you know, the 30 to 39 category. Um, but particularly in my I don't think actually in Generation Z, this, the, the, the younger generation, I think they're starting to lose the familiarity with this prayer. But I imagine for many in the room today, it is a very familiar prayer. The American church leader and writer um, Tim Keller talks about the dangers of familiarity with this prayer. He said, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer as the key to unlock all the riches of prayer, yet it is an untapped resource partly because it is so very familiar. So we are going to spend five weeks, uh, over the next five weeks, looking at the Lord's Prayer, taking it sort of section by section, not quite line by line, but section by section, and I am very excited. I realized that last week I spoke about the running father, and then, which was a similar talk to what I did on Father's Day back, back then. And today I'm talking of the first line in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. I was speaking to my mum this week and she says, Matt, you need some new material. <laughs> I think she's probably just jealous that my dad gets all the attention. Um, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not simply just the starting point of prayer but it actually acts as the, the context within which your prayers are. When you pray, you pray to someone that Jesus says is our Father. I love what Tom Wright, one of my favorite biblical scholars, says about these first lines. He says, the first words of the Lord's Prayer represent the goal 
to which we are working, rather than the starting point from which we set out. And by that he means it's not just the way that we might just address God and say, Father, but it's our journey towards figuring out what that really means. He goes on to say, as soon as someone becomes a Christian, he or she can and must say our Father. That is one of the marks of grace, one of the first signs of faith, but it will take full Christian maturity to understand and resonate with what those words really mean. So what does it mean to pray our Father? Two things that I want to draw out for us this morning. The first is this, to pray our Father is to pray with a profoundly personal and intimate relationship with God. It's personal and intimate. It is widely agreed by modern scholars that the Lord's Prayer begins with the Aramaic word Abba. Insert joke about Swedish pop group. Abba was a term used by an Aramaic-speaking person when addressing their earthly father. But it was also used to address a respected person of rank, so a student-to-teacher sort of relationship. In at least four countries in the Middle East today, Abba is still the first word that a young child learns to say. It's such a profoundly personal, intimate term to use that often it's suggested that perhaps you might say, like, it would be, a literal translation might be daddy, more so than the formal word of father. It's, it's, it's that intimate of a relationship. Daddy. Daddy. I love to hear my boys calling after me. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I love to hear sort of a, a loving and excited daddy being shouted at me whenever I come home or whenever they see me or whenever they want to do, you know, play with me. They, they do actually know, know my name. They know my name and they know Fiona's name, my wife, and they find it hilarious to use. And maybe Fiona might call me Matt, and then little Elijah, who's just three, will go, Matt, <laughs> and start laughing like a cheeky monkey, or even sometimes like a tiny little evil villain, so like Matt. <laughs> actually, what they, what they think my name, they think my name is Daddy Matt Bray. That's what they think my full name is. And whenever they sort of say, they call me Matt, or they call Fiona, Fiona, our, our approach, our response is, is this. We say, hey, everyone gets to call us that name. Everyone gets to call me Matt and gets to call your mummy Fiona. But only you get to call us mummy and daddy. How special is that? And in the same way, Jesus invites us into a special way of approaching God by calling him Abba, Father. It's John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in verse 12, says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you pray, Our Father, you pray as someone with this profoundly personal and intimate relationship with God, a relationship that we are invited into because of Jesus. And in a close relationship like that, there is space for honesty and there is space for being real with God. I remember one of the first times that I prayed, I became, I, well, I sort of said the, the prayer to become a Christian when I was 11 years old. I'd grown up in church, but I'd never really prayed in front of people. And I was so nervous when I first prayed. I'd heard enough prayers from adults around me and other people to know that there are some lines that sound good. 
And so when I, my first prayers were a string of one-liners using words that I didn't even know the meaning of what they meant. Line after line, I would just one-liner, a bit like Tim Vine, but it wasn't funny. Um, I was really encouraged on Thursday. I was in Exeter and at the cathedral because the, the Bishop of Exeter, every year he invites all the clergy to come uh, to uh, these quiet days that he runs. And we were in the cathedral and he was talking to us about prayer. And he said this, and I, I found this amazing and really encouraging. He said, it can take a long time to become elegant in prayer, but it only takes one moment of honesty to be real in prayer. And he went on to say that God would rather have your real and honest prayers than anything that's elegant. He wants the from the heart kind of prayers from us. God is our Father. He's not a cosmic coach who stands on the sidelines of the universe, shouting at us, deeply disappointed, distant, or angry. No, God is a God who is Father, who is close and caring. So firstly, to pray our Father is to pray as someone with a profoundly personal and intimate relationship with God. Secondly, to pray our Father is to pray as someone who is now drawn into a bigger story than themselves. What story you place your life in is important because the story that you live in is the story that you live out. We all live with a certain story, a certain narrative in our lives, and those narratives are shaped by our past experiences, our identity, our, they're shaped by our hopes, and they're shaped by our fears. And those stories that we believe, the things that we sort of say over ourselves and live in a certain narrative, they impact the way that we live our lives. For a large part of my life, I lived with this obnoxious confidence, I would say, that whatever it was, I, I could just wing it. I could just wing life and everything would be all right. Success finds me, sort of obnoxiousness. Um, whether that was my exams or whether that was sort of running races or drama and sort of musical performances, without much prep, I could wing it. I could get away with it. And that's just me. I thought, I can wing it. I can get away with it. Life favors me. I am untouchable. And it worked a lot. Actually, it really worked for my GCSEs. When I did my GCSEs, I put in very little effort, and I did really well. And I went with the same approach for my A-levels. I wouldn't put in much effort. But that narrative of, I can wing it, and it will be all right, came crashing down when I could spell Q with my A-level results. That's a C in drama. That was a U in music. And that's an E in religious studies. <laughs> it wasn't a helpful narrative to live my life by. Actually, I lived it. There's many other narratives and stories that I live by as well. Perhaps more seriously, for my whole teenage life, I, I was in a relationship. There was never, never really a moment where I wasn't in a relationship because I lived within this story, this narrative that I was lacking. I wasn't whole. I wasn't complete unless I was with someone, which led me to live very anxiously out of fear for things falling apart. It led me to be a bit more controlling, a bit more, it led me to be quite paranoid um, in my behavior. And that sense of not feeling enough 
not feeling whole or complete can still creep in from time to time in my life. And I perhaps I wonder what stories and narratives play out in your mind and in your life and how that might affect yours. Perhaps you carry the story that you're not good enough or that you have to achieve something, you have to do something to be successful, to receive acceptance and praise and, and love. Perhaps you carry the story of, of disappointment. And so now life is, is just through that lens of things will always disappoint. We're always going to be let down. Don't get too comfortable because things are always going to tra- uh, change. Maybe you, you, the story driving you is actually not wanting to let other people down. And so you work hard, hard, hard and never slow down, perhaps never stopping. What these stories they do, they, they impact our decisions and the way that we view our, our lives and ourselves and who we are. And yet Jesus wants to draw us into a different story, a more life-giving, life-changing kind of story. Notice how Jesus tells us to pray. He doesn't say, my father, but tells us to pray, our father. The Psalms, the Psalms is like a book full of songs and prayers, and it's full of sort of my God, my Lord. But Jesus says, start your prayers with our Father, because the Lord's Prayer draws us into the story of the family of God. Back in Jesus' day, and actually it was still today really, the the traditional prayers in the synagogue uh, during Jesus' time, they would begin in different ways. There was about 18 different ways that you could start your prayer. One of them would be you'd start your prayer by saying, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Or you'd start your prayer saying, God of our fathers. And to address God in that way, to say God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is to pray a a prayer which is for a particular group of people with a particular history. But when we pray, we are now drawn into that story, the story of Israel, the story of God's redemption. When Jesus tells us to start our prayers with our Father, the, the biblical scholar, Kenneth Bailey, I know a lot of you are thinking like, Matt's been reading this week. Kenneth Bailey says, to pray our father, Jesus affirms a vision of a family of faith that goes way beyond the community of those who claimed a racial tie to Abraham. He says, because every human being of any tribe or nation has a father, thereby if God is our father, all people are able to address him equally. There is no racial or historical insider or outsider. To pray our Father is to pray as someone who is drawn into a bigger story than ourselves. And so what is that story that we are drawn into? Well, the first moment in the Hebrew Bible where this idea of God being a father comes in, it comes in the story of Moses. If you know Moses or if you've seen uh, um, the Prince of Egypt. I love that film. There can be miracles. Um, Moses marches up to Pharaoh and says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. For Israel to see God as their father is all wrapped up in this promise that God says, Israel is my child, is my son. I am his father, I am their father. And that sense of God being a father is to hold on to a hope of freedom and and, uh, liberty. 
During Jesus' time, the Jewish people, they were oppressed again, much like when the, when the Israelites were in Egypt, oppressed by the Egyptians. They were oppressed again under the Roman Empire, hoping for freedom yet again. And they wanted like another exodus. They wanted another way to be set free. And then there's you and I today. We're not oppressed by any uh, oppressive ruler. We're not slaves in the same sense. But throughout the New Testament, is a language that talks about us being slaves to bad habits, to sin, captive in our sin, slaves to the flesh and our desires, and, and slaves to the things that might lead to death. And I say this a lot, that Jesus, there's a common misconception about Jesus, and it's simply that Jesus came and he just wants to make bad people good people. But that is not what Jesus came to do. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead things to life. He came to free those who were held captive by sin and death. So when Jesus says to his disciples, you should call God Father, pray our Father, he wants us to get ready for a new exodus and to live within that story, a story of redemption, of God doing the impossible and bringing new life and new hope in even the most desperate of situations. He wants us to pray our Father, knowing that when just as God broke off the chains of oppression for the Israelites, he too can bring freedom in your life. He wants us to pray our Father, knowing that just as God led the Israelites through the sea into freedom, that he can also carry us and carry all our burdens and our fears and our brokenness and carry us into new life. He wants us to pray our Father, knowing that just as God was faithful to his promise and led the Israelites into the promised land, that he will also be faithful to us in his promises to us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The very first word of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just about intimacy, but it's about oh, revolution. It's not just about familiarity with the Father, but it's about finding freedom and finding hope. So when you pray, our Father, pray as someone who is now in a profoundly personal and intimate relationship with God. And pray as someone who is drawn into that story which is so much bigger than yourself, a story of hope and freedom and redemption. Pray with confidence, pray with boldness, and pray in hope. Amen.